0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Hey guys, good morning. It's good to see everyone. Thanks for joining us in worship. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would help us to feel both the wonder and the weight of your word this morning. As we walk out of here, we'd want nothing more, Jesus, than to make your name known here in Austin and among the nations. We know that this can only be accomplished by the power and presence of your spirit. So even now, in these few moments together, give us ears to hear, eyes to see and hearts to embrace Christ as we encounter him in your word, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, we're going to be in Matthew 13 this morning, but before we get there, I want to begin with a quote from Jim Elliot. It's a name some of you may recognize. Uh, Elliot graduated from Wheaton College with his heart riveted and set ablaze by the gospel to take the name of Jesus to a people who had never heard of him. And so he, along with four of his missionary friends and their families, five, all five of them were married, four were fathers, one wife was pregnant, ended up in Ecuador to reach a remote, totally unreached jungle tribe for Jesus. And on January 8th, 1956, all five of them were speared to death for the cause of Christ among the Alca Indians. Jim was 28, but here's what Jim Elliott wrote in his diary. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that, which he cannot lose. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that, which he cannot lose in mid November of last year. So end of 2022 researchers estimated that the global population had exceeded 8 billion people. Now, just to give us some historical perspective, they also estimate that by the early to mid 1800s, there were only around a billion people. And most experts who study population trends are projecting it will reach 9 to 10 billion as early as 2050. Now, I don't bring that up to talk about overcrowding or climate change, but simply to shine a really big Bible spotlight on 8 billion human beings like you and me who bear the image of God, who will be born, will live, and they will die, and they will enter eternity. And we still have the words of the resurrected Jesus ringing in our ears this morning. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And look up here, behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now it is not hard for us to see what the church's mission is. That part is clear. At least it should be clear. But the question that we need to wrestle with is, does it matter to us? Does it impact the way that you and I think about our lives, about Jesus, the gospel, money, our neighbors, and eternity? In other words, is it peripheral to the life of a Christian or is it central? Let me come at that question from a different angle. If you and your family were born in, let's say, Yemen, Or Ecuador, among the Alcas, before Elliot and his team got there, where you may never encounter a Christian in your lifetime, how would you want followers of Jesus in America to respond to that question? This morning, we're beginning a a short five week series on the parables of Jesus, and I wanted to start us off with two of the shortest. Now, before you get all excited about the short part, I should probably say that a shorter text doesn't necessarily mean a shorter sermon. It may or may not mean that, but in keeping with the spirit of our age, I'll let you decide what shorter means. But I picked these two parables as a place for us to start thinking about the mission of the church with a capital C. And as we go along, I'm going to be pulling in other passages, which will give this a different look and feel. But I wanted to start here because I think Jesus gets us to the goal of missions, to what we want to see happen in neighborhoods near to us here in Austin, among the two plus million in the Metro and what we want to see happen in nations far from us among the eight or so billion. Now, this is a, a both and this is not an either or to both hand. And, and as, as Brent just prayed, this is particularly relevant right now because we have a small team from all saints who left on Friday to serve in Peru this week. And my prayer, is that many who are sitting here this morning will feel compelled by the gospel to leverage their lives, their time, their talents, their treasures for the cause of Christ in the world, because the truth is you and I will never commend to others what we ourselves don't cherish. We won't commend to others what we ourselves don't cherish. If we don't see Jesus as supremely valuable, but something else like more and nicer stuff, we won't go out of our way or make any sacrifice to make him known. Whether that's across the street or across an ocean, we will care way more, way more about padding our portfolio than following Jesus into the slums of Calcutta's poorest, if that's where he calls. To put it simply, we praise what we prize. We praise what we prize. C.S. Lewis reminds us of this. You guys know the quote. He says, the world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers, their favorite poet. And he says this, I had not noticed that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it and what these parables do is point us to the prize to the greatest value in the universe in order to lead us to praise now i'm going to argue that when jesus says here this is what the kingdom of heaven is like he intends for us to draw the conclusion about what the king himself is like so look with me at what he says here matthew 13:44 The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. First, notice these two parables present us with two kinds of people, two kinds of people in this room. The first, let's just say, is just strolling along on autopilot. They're just strolling along through life. Probably not thinking too much about God or death or eternity or the meaning of their existence, but they're just getting married, building wealth, buying a house, raising kids, planning for retirement. And out of the blue, they stumble upon a treasure of inestimable value. And then there's the person who's searching for something searching for satisfaction, for significance, for meaning, for purpose, for God, lots of times in the wrong places. And in their quest, they finally discover a pearl of incalculable value. So what we see in both of these parables is that each of them encounter something that is more valuable, more precious to them than all their earthly possessions. And when they do, They give up everything they have to gain it. So what is that thing? What I think is going on here is Jesus is painting a picture of the birth of a believer. It's a Christian. This is the experience of someone who encounters Christ, the King in the gospel and who sees him as infinitely beautiful and valuable and finds him supremely satisfying. And they can't help, but embrace him knowing that everything else in this world, and I mean everything, possessions, reputation, house, zip code, school zone, comforts, travel, family, and all the rest pales in comparison to having him, which means that saving faith is not stepping on Jesus to get something we want more even if that more is escape from hell. He is not a means to some other end. He is the end. Jesus won't be used. He will only be treasured above all else, which is why he says that man was glad to sell everything he had in order to gain the one thing he couldn't go without. It says in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys that field. Or to quote Elliot again, he is no fool who gives what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose. And it forces the difficult question, does this describe us? Is this who Jesus is to us? A supreme treasure, a prized pearl, or do we prefer something else more than him? Are we in danger of being like the rich young ruler when he asked Jesus, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know the story, right? Jesus says to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And then it says, but when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Translation, he loved his money more and Jesus exposed it. Jesus wasn't worthy enough for him to follow, not if it cost him everything. We saw the same thing in our gospel reading last week where Jesus said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Is Jesus insane? But to put it differently, there is nothing in the world, no possession or no person who is more worthy or more valuable, more precious than Jesus. He knows that's what we need most. My kids came home a couple weeks ago from vacation Bible school here at All Saints. And they were singing a catchy little song with a line that makes this very point. Kids in the room who were there, you know it. Uh, I'm tempted to do the motions, but I won't but it goes like this. We look to the cross. The cross marks the spot, the spot for the treasure. Here it comes. The treasure is Jesus. Now, if you're sitting there thinking that all of this that I've talked about so far is at best implied here in the parable, let me take you to the apostle Paul where he'd be hard pressed to make the point more explicit. You heard it from our Epistle reading from Philippians 3. Listen to what he says again. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Could he be any clearer? What he describes there is the experience of every Christian. Paul's not the exception. He's the rule. And that is the point of these parables and Jesus is their treasure. He is the pearl and the prize. Therefore, God's great goal in missions can be summed up in one word, worship. It is to create joyful worshipers of Jesus. For men and women, boys and girls, whether they are here in Austin or in Algeria, to encounter Christ in the gospel and embrace him, as eternally satisfying, counting every competing prize as a loss in comparison to having him. This is the heart of an enduring faith and the heart of the mission that takes men and their families to the jungles of Ecuador. Now, at this point, you might be thinking to yourself, that's great, Adam. I agree with you that the mission of the church matters, but why should it matter to me today? And that's where I want to turn next Because again, we praise what we prize, right? That if Jesus truly is our treasure, we will want to tell the world about him. To use Lewis's word, it'll just spontaneously spill out of us, right? And what we find is that worship is not only the goal of missions, it's what fuels it. It's what we're doing here this morning. If you were to come over to our house on any given day in any given week, and you were to walk through our front door, it is more than likely, speaking from personal experience here, that you would encounter things like Legos and blocks and magnet tiles. Parents can relate, right? That's because our kids have been building and tearing things down all day so that it looks like a bomb went off. But if you want to build a foundation that is strong enough to support a structure, and be able to put all the right pieces into place, you first need to clear away the clutter. And that's what I want to try to do. Begin adding fuel to the fire of our worship by laying a foundation for missions. In other words, what are a few big things? I have four listed here. A few big things that we believe to be true based on what we see in the Bible that serve like pillars in support of leveraging all of our resources to take this gospel treasure to some of the hardest to reach places in the world. Let me start by reading our mission statement here at All Saints, it's a good one. It says, All Saints is a community of God's people called to live and to love as the body of Christ in Austin for the world, through worship, spiritual formation and service. So what I wanna do first is focus on the for the world part and then bring it home. So global big picture and end, local and talk particularly about church planting. Some of you know, my family and I moved here almost exactly a year ago to partner with you at All Saints to start a new church in Austin. Because more than anything, we want to see Jesus encountered and embraced here in this city to the ends of the earth. And so let me take you back to the beginning with 8 billion people we started off with. And specifically, I want us to be thinking about how over 3 billion of them have never even heard the name of Jesus. Let that sink in for a moment. People like you and me, made in God's image, moms and dads, brothers and sisters with dreams and desires who like us are born into sin and deserving of hell and in desperate need of a savior. But who, because of where they were born, will live and will die, never once hearing the good news that you and I cherish this morning. And they will perish apart from Christ. And the reality is there are precious few people, if any, at this moment in history, making their way to them in order to make Jesus known among them. But maybe that'll begin to change this morning. The first thing to say in support of taking the gospel to the nations Is that Jesus is worthy of the world's worship. John Piper has said missions exist because of worship doesn't. Now we've already seen that he's worthy, right? He's the treasure, but why is he worthy? And we get a clear answer to that question in places like Revelation 5, 9, where it says of Jesus, this is the end of history in heaven, say worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Did you hear in those words, why Jesus is worthy of the praise of all the peoples on the planet? Answer, it's because by his blood, he's purchased a people for God from every single one of them. What this verse is getting at when it says every tribe, language, people, and nation is what we know today as people groups. Now, what's that? Let me give you one missions definition of a people group. For evangelization purposes, taking the gospel, a people group is the largest group within which the gospel can spread as a church planting movement without encountering barriers of understanding or acceptance. So think of things like language cultural differences that prevent the gospel, the good news of Jesus from spreading and from churches being planted. Now it's estimated that there are roughly 17,400 such people groups in the world. And of that number, 7,400 of them are still considered unreached and unengaged, which means they have little to no access to the gospel. That's roughly 3 billion people with no church that they can walk into or a Christian that they can talk to. They'll be born, live and die and likely never hear the name of Jesus. They simply won't encounter him. But what this verse among others tells us is that Jesus on the cross shed his blood to ransom people from every single one of them. That's what he did. He accomplished that on the cross. And because of it, he calls and commissions his church, you and me to make disciples among them all so that his name is known and he is worshipped because he is worthy. And so guys, the gospel is not only the greatest news in all the world, but it is the greatest news for all the world. Do we believe that? Which leads to a second thing that we believe to be true based on the Bible for why the mission of the church matters. And that is, we believe in the eternal realities of heaven and hell. We believe that those who receive Christ as their treasure, who trust in him alone, will experience the happiness of heaven, of God's pleasure in his presence for all of eternity. You know, Psalm 1611, in your presence, God, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. But on the other side, those who reject him or who haven't encountered him yet are without excuse. As it says in Romans 1, those 3 billion people around the world right now, as well as our neighbors who live on our street, will experience the horrors of hell, of God's wrath and his rejection for all eternity. Friends, it's really easy for us to forget or just flat out deny especially with the cultural air that we breathe. But this eternity is what's at stake in missions. Therefore, the good news is of eternal importance because of these two realities of judgment and joy. Now there are lots of places in the Bible that we could go to see this, but we don't even have to leave Matthew 13 to see this because our two parables here are bookended by Jesus's explanation of the parable of the weeds He had a Bible, which comes just before these parables. And then the parable of the net, which comes after these, where Jesus says things like this. He says, the son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not a coincidence then that Jesus and Matthew would put the treasure and the pearl between these two, these two parables of judgment because he wants you and me to know exactly where joy that is full and lasts forever is found, right? X marks the spot. It's in him. It's only in him that to embrace him as your greatest joy is to escape eternal judgment. Because in the end, these are the only two destinies for every person on the planet, and Jesus, the treasure of eternal value as He has offered us in the gospel, is the only way to everlasting joy, which leads to the third critical piece of the foundation, the cornerstone. the absolute necessity of Christ for salvation. Here's a handful of texts that highlight this: John 14:6. Jesus said to Thomas, "This is the night before the cross." Jesus said. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me or acts four 11, and 12, where Peter says to the Jewish leaders, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone and there is salvation and no one else For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Or take the apostle Paul. He certainly believed this to be true, which is why at the cost of his own life, why he kept taking the gospel of Jesus to people and places who had not yet heard. Listen to what he says in Romans 10. It's a very important passage. Follow his logic here. He's quoting from our Old Testament reading. He says, how then will they call on Jesus in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. What Paul is saying there is that no one can be saved from the wrath of God that is coming apart from the preaching of the gospel and faith in Jesus, because it is in the gospel that they encounter Christ. There's no other way no other name, Christ is the cornerstone and without him, the whole thing crumbles. This leads then to the fourth and the final thing that if these things are true, that Jesus really is worthy of the world's worship because he's purchased a people for God from among all peoples and there awaits either eternal judgment or joy for every person. And no one can be saved from their sin apart from embracing Jesus as he's offered in the gospel, that if these things are true, guys, then surely there is an urgency to reach the unreached around the world and the unchurched here at home. Again, the apostle Paul certainly thought so. He says in Romans 15, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, but lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. We got any Paul-like or Jim Elliott-like people in the room with that kind of ambition? Paul, guys, had gotten his arms around the treasure and wanted to tell the world where to find it. I know where it is. He went to places where no one had yet gone with the gospel and no church had been established because he really believed what theologian Carl Henry believed, which is the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. This is why the mission of the church matters. And I suspect that if we were living in places like Afghanistan right now, we would want it to matter to the people in this room too. So that's the nations, that's the gospel going global. But what about here at home? What about us here at home? Because not every follower of Jesus is going to live out their days in India or China. But they're gonna faithfully live right in the neighborhood in which God has put them, and that's the vast majority of us. But here's what I've been trying to get us to see: that the foundation is the same for both. It is the same fuel for the fire. That this is not an either or, this is a both and. It's why we came to partner with you in planting a church. is because we want to see the resurrected, now reigning, soon to return, Jesus encountered and embraced in Austin and to the ends of the earth. Like We want Psalm 67, which is the word that gathered us to worship this morning, to be our prayer and our passion, which says, let the peoples praise you, oh God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations praise Be glad and sing for joy and let that start right here in our city among us. Because as Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, the ultimate purpose of our salvation. If you wanna know why you are a Christian this morning, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1. He says, it is to the praise of God's glorious grace in Christ Jesus. We praise what we prize. And there is no prize more precious, more praise worthy than Jesus. Therefore, the whole point of planting a new church is for that praise to happen. For people like us to know and delight in the supreme value and beauty of Jesus and in knowing and treasuring him, want nothing more than to make him known among our neighbors and among the nations. Let me try to put a fine point on this and finish where we started by giving Jim Elliott the final word. After they died, a rescue party found his diary. And these were the last words that he wrote in it as he and his four friends waited for the Alka Indians to come to them. Listen to what he says, and will be done. I walked out to the hill just now It is exalting, delicious to stand embraced by the shadows of a friendly tree with the wind tugging at your coattail and the heavens hailing your heart to gaze in glory and give oneself again to God. What more could a man ask? Oh, the fullness, pleasure, sheer excitement of knowing God on earth. I care not if I never raise my voice again for him. If only I may love him, please him. Perhaps in mercy he shall give me a host of children, converts, that I may lead them through the vast star fields to explore his delicacies, whose finger ends set them to burning. But if not, if only I may see him, touch his garments, and smile into his eyes, ah, then not stars nor children shall matter, only himself. O oh, Jesus, master and center and end of all. How long before that glory is yours, which has so long awaited you? Now there is no thought of you among men, then there shall be thought of for nothing else. Now other men are praised, then none shall care for any other's merits. Hasten, hasten glory of heaven. Take your crown, subdue your kingdom, enthrall your creatures. To that we say a very hearty Amen. Let's pray. Oh, that's what we want more than anything. For Christ Jesus to take his crown. We want to see Jesus and to be enthralled and we want it for people near and far. Think about our friends, our family. We've been given this great treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to you and not to us. So get all the glory, God, and give us and countless others the greatest joy. Give us, Jesus, now and forever. Amen.